Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ted Naiman, or I should say joined again by Dr. Ted Naiman. Hopefully you've seen him on the Diet Doctor Podcast before. He was on episode 40 back in February of 2020 talking about the pillars of long-term health. And then again, episode 70 in May of 21 talking about the power of protein. Well, today he's back again to talk about satiety. Now, satiety is a word that, you know, you may not have heard of all that much. And, you know, so it's important for us to talk about what is satiety? mean? And more importantly than what it means, what does it mean to you? How can you use the concepts of satiety to help you eat better, which then can help with healthy weight loss, improve metabolic health, whatever your health goals may be. So satiety could be the most important number one factor to help you on your your journey for a long-term sustainable eating pattern. And we also talk about how these concepts of higher satiety eating can apply to any kind of diets, whether it's a plant-based diet, a um, a carnivore diet, Mediterranean diet, anywhere between high protein, low protein, how the concepts of satiety fit into those different patterns. So whatever eating pattern you're coming from, this podcast is likely going to help you. This concept of satiety is likely going to help you. Now, if you haven't heard of Dr. Ted Naiman before, he's a family physician in the Seattle area. He's the um, author of the PE Diet Book. He's very active on Twitter and Instagram at Ted Naiman, and he's a big proponent of healthy eating, eating better, eating higher satiety. So without further ado, let's get into this podcast so you can learn if higher satiety eating is right for you. So Ted, let's start with what sounds like a simple question, but maybe isn't. What, what is satiety? How do you think of satiety? Satiety. Well, satiety is the absence of hunger. And satiety is the non-hungry sensation that you get in response to eating. And uh, you can kind of measure satiety a couple of different ways. It could be how long you go after eating before your next meal, or it could be um, at a subsequent time to meal how much you eat. So if you ate something for breakfast, like maybe you go all day without eating, that would be a lot of satiety. Or maybe you have lunch uh, planned four hours later, but you don't eat very much. That would also be satiety. So it's really just the absence of hunger that one gets uh, as a consequence of eating um, and getting nutrients. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In, in, in Diet Doctor, which is based in Sweden, we've been talking about the term satiety a lot. And I love how they brought up there's this Swedish term, mech, which means like just kind of comfortably full. And we don't really have the same term in English. And is because some people think like, is satiety like stuffed, like I'm just full and can't eat anymore? Or is it more mech? Is it more that comfortably full? So how do you help people understand that it's not like, I don't know, that you don't just stuff yourself and you're satiated, but at what point can someone say, I'm adequately satiated? How do they get in touch with those feelings? Well, I think that's tough. And you're right. We don't have a good word for that here in the US. And it's probably too bad. I know in Japan, they have an excellent concept uh, for a similar phenomenon. And we kind of need something analogous. And I I always encourage people to get very in touch with hunger and fullness so they really know what it's like to be actually hungry and uh, what it's like to be comfortably full or properly um, sated. And that's one of the things that I think maybe intermittent fasting might be somewhat beneficial for is people know what it's like to actually be hungry rather just than just, you know, running out of glucose from their last carb snack or something. So uh, there are different levels of hunger and different levels of fullness and satiety. And the more in tune with that you are, the better off I think you're going to be in the long run. So it's a very important um, concept in terms of like 
Uh, I think around here, you know, you go to the all you can eat buffet and satiety is just like eating so much that you can't move. Like it, the meal's not over yeah. until you just hate yourself and you can barely move and you feel sick. So we need a, we need a word like that. That's definitely true. Yeah. So the Japanese concept you referred to is that the, the harihachi boo that like eat till you're 75% full, basically that concept. Right. Right. And I've, I don't know if it's 75 or 80, but it's like something's yeah. around there and it's just like not quite full and just comfortably okay. Yeah, that's a good point. So if, if you're trying to design the worst diet for satiety, is can you think of a worse one than like the standard American diet or how, how would you design the worst diet for satiety? No, I can't think of a worse diet than that. And in fact, uh, you know, there've been a lot of companies trying to design obesogenic rat chow that is, uh, that is most efficient at fattening uh, rats and mice in the lab to create Western diseases like diabetes and, um, you know, metabolic syndrome and obesity. And they've really found nothing that's more effective than human junk food, which tends to be this strange combination of lowish protein around 10%, uh, high carbon, high fat at the same time, 40 to 60% of each, and then uh, very high energy density. And pretty much every omnivore mammal will overeat that by about 40% of calories in your lab. Rats and mice will um, just completely overeat that from a weird combination of hedonism because it's so tasty with the trifecta of high carb, high fat, high energy density. And also the protein and nutrients are low enough that nothing's stopping you from radically overeating non-protein calories. And so uh, I don't think we have anything that's better than human junk food at, um, I don't think there's a worse diet. And believe me, people have tried for uh, laboratory rodents. So no, I think we've pretty much hit peak obesity with uh, tasty junk food. And when you think about it, the just kind of the free market uh, economics of all of this is designed to just slowly evolve towards the food that is the most addictive, the most overconsumed, and generates the most profit for shareholders for, um, you know, Mars or, you know, whatever company is designing this uh, junk food. So I, I think everything is working as it should in a free market economy um, where you just uh, evolutionarily fine tune food to be maximum um, consumable. And uh, here we are. Yeah, it's like, well, welcome to America. So yeah, I know I don't think there's anything worse, honestly. Yeah, so when we look at all these graphs that show in like the late 70s, early 80s, just the takeoff of obesity and type 2 diabetes and how it just like continues to go up, do you think the number one cause is lack of satiety or increased hunger or you know too many of the non-satiating calories? Would you go so far to say that is the number one cause or would you say it's like, yeah, can equally contributing as other factors? Well, I, I think it's a, a weird combination of, <clears throat> on one hand, nutrient dilution. So you have, you've diluted protein and minerals and nutrients with refined carbs and refined fats. You basically just sh dumped sugar and oil into the food supply. So you get this nutrient dilution and you're forced to overeat calories from fat and carbs to get enough satiety to not be hungry. But then on the other hand, you, so you're pushing it forward with this nutrient dilution and then you're pulling obesity forward with the hedonic, tasty, addictive, rewarding nature of these high energy density carbs and fats. And so your liking and your wanting is very, very high for these foods. So it's this weird combination of push-pull, uh, both of which, however, is generated by this um, protein dilution and nutrient dilution and absence of fiber. And so technically the satiety is very, very low either side of that coin that you look at, the, the amount of satiety for the number of calories you ate is horrible. So whether you're, it's tasty and addictive, 
that's negative satiety for a trillion calories. And then if it's just protein diluted donuts or something, that's also uh, very little satiety for a billion calories. And that's also horrible satiety per calorie. So the, the lens of satiety per calorie, it really explains both sides of this obesity push pull, which is really just dilution of nutrients from refined carbs and refined fats. So I do think that kind of explains you know, both sides at once. That's a good explanation, except Ted, now you just really stepped in it. You used the C word. You said the word calorie. So as soon as some people say the word, hear the word calorie, they just like, it's not about calories. It's not calories in, calories out. Calories don't matter. So, you know, it's, I think it's more nuanced. And we actually have a, a recent guide that we published at Diet Doctor about when is a calorie, not a calorie. But you said satiety per calorie. So help us understand the difference between satiety and satiety per calorie. Nothing would give you more satiety than actually eating a billion calories of junk food. If you just ate like 10 pizzas and a gallon of ice cream, you would have a ton of real satiety. Like you would not be hungry for a long time, but you would have also eat, you know, like 150 million calories. So that's <laughs> if when you take the satiety you got and divide it by calories, that's horrible satiety per calorie. But if somebody made you eat, you know, 20 chicken breasts for a competitive eating, <laughs> some sort of food uh, eating competition, uh, you would have a lot of satiety for way less calories. And so that would be satiety per calorie. You've got calories in the denominator. So something that uh, makes you feel really full, like a skinless chicken breast that doesn't have a lot of calories, would have very high satiety per calorie. But like just eating, you know, a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts would give you uh, a lot of satiety, but even more calories. So fairly poor satiety per calorie. It, it's it's tricky. And everyone's like, well, you know, I get tons of satiety from oil and butter and fat and lard and bacon and, and nuts. And I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> but um, that is a lot of calories. And I know some people don't believe in calories, right? I, I don't either. Like a calorie is just a made up thing. But the carbons, the carbon atoms in every single gram of fat you ever ingest will end up one of two places inside your fat cells or somewhere else, or if they're full, somewhere where your body's trying to store fat, like shoving it in your liver, uh, or you will exhale them after you've oxidized them in your mitochondria. Period. So this is just mass balance. Every carbon atom you ingest from fat has to either be stored in your fat cells or exhaled after you've oxidized your mitochondria. Um, and you have to either exercise more, so you're exhaling more carbons, or eat less to begin with. And so whether you're a calorie believer or not, and I'm, I honestly like to think about it more as mass balance in carbons, personally, just from a mechanical engineering background, I do agree that calories is sort of a, you know, make believe construct, but uh, it's very, very real. It's the, the energy in these carbon bonds is a real thing and it's going nowhere unless you burn it off. And yet there's, you know, so many examples at Diet Doctor and throughout the world of people who started a ketogenic diet by purposely eating bacon and putting butter in their coffee and, you know, cooking their meals in cream and adding cheese to everything, which theoretically is poor satiety per calorie, but they lose weight and they feel better and they start hitting a lot of their health goals and reduce their blood sugar. So how do we balance the concept of satiety per calorie with knowing that other examples exist with poor satiety per calorie foods like fat, helping people lose weight, at least initially. Gotcha. Well, first of all, <clears throat> in almost every scenario, people who've done this have increased the protein percentage of their diet, which is incredibly 
powerful for society. Um, uh, another thing that we know is evidence-based for improving satiety per calorie is a reduction in the glycemic index of your food. So if you're eating lower glycemic index carbohydrates, um, you know, Dr. Ludwig has a, some great studies on this. This is evidence-based. You will have higher satiety per calorie. You will eat less with a lower glycemic index. So um, eliminating refined carbs, which have a very high energy density, um, eating less refined carbs, which have higher fiber, which definitely improves satiety per calorie, uh, eating a higher protein percentage, lowering the glycemic index. All of these things have been dramatically proven to improve satiety and satiety per calorie. So every single thing that you mentioned there is going to make people have higher satiety per calorie with the possible exception of adding a lot of added fat. And to be perfectly honest, I think um, the addition of saturated, uh, or not just saturated fat, but adding any kind of fat um, might be one of the reasons people plateau on a low carb diet. Because you know, I, you know, I have so much low carb experience with patients, and everybody like immediately just drops twenty pounds and then plateaus out a little bit fatter than they want to be, and that's where you might want to look at the next level of society per calorie, which is possibly. Um, increasing protein and fiber and water and uh, weight and volume of food for fewer calories, which typically does involve at least eating less added fats, if not even lower fat proteins. Um, so that's just one other lever people can pull. And I think that's the one lever that isn't already pulled on a well-formulated low-carb or ketogenic diet. Yeah, it's a good point. There's a lot about a keto diet that makes it inherently um, a higher satiety diet. But then the question is, can you do even better? But so the next perception I think is, well, to do even better means I have to eat skinless chicken breast and plain steamed broccoli. And that sounds miserable for a lot of people. And that's, you know, old dietary advice that many people have, have not succeeded on. So is that the satiety per calorie diet that most people should be following? Plain skinless chicken breast and plain steamed broccoli? Definitely no. So, so um, you get a lot of very acute short-term satiety from things like water and fiber, and uh, these improve satiation, which is terminating a meal, basically feeling like you're full at that time. But for a longer term, for a medium uh, term and late term satiety, this post-ingestive satiety, you absolutely have to have fat in your diet. You will not have good medium to long-term satiety and late satiety without fat. If you go too low in fat, you're just going to be hungry again way, way, way too soon. And we see this in low-fat vegan fruitarians who are just eating, you know, 20 times a day because they, uh, you eat a whole watermelon, you've got a ton of satiation and very early-term um, satiety and intramural satiety, which is where you just stop eating because your stomach can't hold another head of cabbage. But, um, you know, medium satiety, late satiety, hours later, you're starving again way too soon. So you absolutely don't want to go to zero on fat. That's a huge mistake. And so there's kind of this spectrum where if I just took everyone's food and just poured oil on all of it all the time, you would passively overeat calories. You would actually get fatter um, because you're ingesting calories that are not improving satiety or adding nutrients, you just are ingesting carbons that have to go somewhere, usually your fat cells. So um, the worst case scenario will be pour, pouring oil on all your food, and you're basically just going to automatically have more calories for the same satiety. And there's a sweet spot where like pouring oil and everything would be bad. And then just eating nothing but skinless chicken breasts and egg whites, white powder with no fat at all would be really bad because 
Um, you might be full during the meal, but you're going to be hungry again way too soon. And somewhere in the middle of that spectrum is sort of this sweet spot. There's probably a pretty good range where, you know, fats, you know, 40% of your calories or, you know, maybe, you know, 30% or 50, 60%, somewhere in this middle zone where it's not too low or too high. And I think that's what people need to be aware of. Um, so it's like, yes, you have to have fat for medium to long-term satiety for late satiety, but no, you don't have to pour oil on every single thing you eat because that's probably going to add calories without any additional satiety. That's a good summary. Now, now, you know, you're the author of the PE diet book. And one thing that book is really known for is the graphics. The graphics are amazing. And you, so you're, you're well known as like a, a, just a graphic creator to show concepts, difficult concepts more simply and in cool ways. So I saw one recently on your Twitter profile, which I highly recommend everybody follow. That was the three, these three different bars and it was fat and water on one. It was carbs and fiber on another. And then it was protein what was the other side of protein in the middle? Energy. Um, yeah, protein oh, yeah, versus protein energy. and energy. Protein exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So tell us, tell us how this diagram um, fits into the concept of satiety, the specific parts, and sort of what we need to focus on. This diagram was honestly kind of confusing and busy, and nobody got it, and it might have been a total fail, which is fine. But I, I was looking at <laughs> basically the satiety per calorie from three different axes, or sort of three different spectrum. Uh, the number one being protein versus non-protein calories. And I displayed it as sort of a vertical axis with protein at the top and non-protein calories. That's net carbs and fats at the bottom. And this is really just protein percent of calories. And to be honest, that is the single most powerful metric when it comes to satiety per calorie and ad lib uh, caloric intake or how much you're going to eat. Protein percent of calories is the single most important thing that anyone could pay attention to if they're trying to eat less automatically, still feel full and lose weight. And that's why I wrote the whole book, The PE Diet, about it, because it is the most powerful thing. And this isn't really debatable. This is basically, um, you know, there's nothing else you could point to that's more powerful for people automatically eating less. So that was one of the, the spectrum I was looking at, protein versus non-protein energy in terms of calories. So it's basically protein percent of calories. The other spectrum I was looking at is uh, had fiber at the top and non-fiber carbohydrates at the bottom. So this is basically the carb spectrum. Everyone's familiar with the carb spectrum at Diet Doctor because all of our visual guides for like the lowest carb nuts and lowest carb vegetables and lowest carb fruits is really just this same thing. It's looking at um, fiber versus non-fiber carbohydrates. It's like if you look at the whole carb spectrum, you'd have like pure fiber at one end and you'd have just pure sugar at the other end. So it's, it's really almost like a fiber to just pure sugar um, ratio. And uh, obviously going a little bit higher is better for satiety per calorie as every single low carber can tell you because that seems to be universal on successful low carb and ketogenic diets is people are eating less refined carbs, glycemic carbs, high GI carbs, uh, sugar-ish carbs, and they're eating more um, non-digestible carbohydrates, more fiber, more, you know, uh, vegetables and that sort of thing. And so this is another <clears throat> spectrum that is very evidence-based for uh, satiety per calorie. We know that higher fiber gives higher satiety, satiety, lower glycemic index gives higher satiety. So you're kind of doing both at the same time when you go up that axis. And then the third one in this cr crazy, crazy graphic of mine that nobody really, really liked is, um, uh, 
I liked uh, it. I liked it. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, one vote. Water versus fat. So there's this water fat spectrum, which a lot of people might have never heard of, but this is actually fairly well documented in the medical literature and in the scientific literature. There's a spectrum from water to fat where foods that are higher and higher and higher in water have less and less, less fat. And then foods that are higher and higher and higher in fat have less and less water. So like oil has no water at all and butter has no water at all. And then, you know, your uh, foods that are 99% water are not going to have any fat. And this is a huge driver of caloric energy density. So when you look at like just the caloric energy density of a food, like, you know, you got a candy bar that's 50 grams in weight and it's 200 calories. So it's got, you know, uh, 0.25, I mean, I'm sorry, four kcals per gram. So it's basically got a caloric energy density of uh, four calories per gram. And this is like mostly driven by the water versus fat spectrum. So like you've got a food with no water in it, like potato chips, they're just like starch and oil and they're dehydrated. So there's no water at all. So they're very, very low way down here in this fat zone. They have incredibly high energy density. They are also, by the way, super obesogenic and the food most associated with obesity is potato chips, basically, because it's dehydrated and all the water's gone. So you have all these foods that are dried and have no water and just a lot of fat having super high energy density and they're easy, easy to overeat. Like nuts, for example, nuts are all the way down here. They have no water at all. They're super high in fat and the energy density is crazy high. So you probably will overconsume them. Um, peanut butter, nuts of any kind. Uh, cheese is kind of down there, unfortunately. Um, and you've got all these dried foods that are hideous, like crackers. They have absolutely no water left. And it's just 50-50 fat and carbs, refined carbs. And this is like a horrible combination of uh, not only uh, high energy density, high carb and high fat, but there's just no water, no fiber, no protein. It's like crackers would be at the bottom of all three axes, right? It's like all fat and no water. Um, all carbs and fats, no protein, uh, and then basically all refined glycemic carbs and no fiber. And so that's the very worst. So down at the bottom, you'd have potato chips and nuts and crackers and all these foods that are just uh, sadly horrifically obesogenic. Um, and then at the top, you would have stuff that's really high in protein and fiber and water and things that nobody could overeat, even if they tried. That's like salad and lettuce and and, you know, vegetables and asparagus and skinless chicken breasts and, uh, um, you know, low-fat cottage cheese and just things that, like, you just cannot overeat this. Like, fish and salad, you're just going to stop eating that. Like, you know, I, I defy anyone to overeat fish and salad with a low-calorie <laughs> dressing. Like, you're just – you could – like, if we just put anyone on a desert island with unlimited amounts of salad, low-calorie dressing, and fish – you're just going to cruise right down to your ideal body weight and stay there forever because you literally cannot overeat these foods. And that is why. Um, so I just I felt like this was a very powerful way of kind of summing up almost all of the evidence based factors for satiety per calorie in one nice little graphic. And yeah. And, and again, I don't know. I don't know if it's uh, effective or not, but. Yeah. I like yeah, well, I, I love the effort. I guess, yeah, based on the Twitter comments, the graphic wasn't a home run. It was a little confusing for people, but I think the effort is awesome. And I love, I do love how, how it combines the different components of satiety and does sort of sum it up. Um, but so there's the counter argument though, that look, if you're coming from a standard American diet and applying these changes, no question, you're going to improve satiety and you're going to improve your health 
and weight loss. But then there are also sort of the extreme sides of things. And one of which, especially when you talk about fiber, is a no-carb diet, a carnivore diet, an all-meat diet, where um, people who start those diets tend to feel full, tend to lose weight. They'll eat once or twice a day. Um, and for it tends to be a very satiating approach for them with zero fiber um, and zero carbs. And so, you know, sometimes the extremes uh, kind of break the, break the theory a little bit. And to be honest, the studies at energy density and the studies of fiber didn't look at this because, you know, 10 years ago, this was crazy. Nobody would even do it. And a lot of people still think it's crazy and wouldn't do it within the medical community. So, so how do you sort of, uh, I don't know, how do you bring that into the picture to say, yeah, this exists and this is a satiating diet for many people who try it? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a great example. Um, I, I, and I, I like, you know, carnivore diets. I have nothing, you know, particularly <clears throat> bad to say. I have a lot of patients who've tried this and had some success with it. And what, what that's doing is automatically pulling almost every single lever there is. I mean, first of all, meat, uh, it's fairly low energy density. There's a lot of water in meat. Most meat is just a medium to low energy density. Some meat like fish and uh, shrimp and anything out of the ocean is actually super, super low energy density. So most of your meat is like medium to low energy density. Uh, it's all, you know, zero carbohydrates. So the glycemic index is, you know, absolute zero. So you've got food with a large weight and volume, a very low energy density, a very low um, amount of glycemia or like none at all. It's got, you know, uh, a low carb, low alcohol, uh, low energy density, tons of protein, like absurdly high protein. Like you just go out and kill an animal and eat the whole thing. If it's the fattest cow you've ever seen, that's 30% protein. That's as low as it ever gets. And everything else is higher than that. So like, uh, you know, you've just got like the fattest cow ever, 30% protein. That's like crazy high. Uh, and then everything else is leaner and even higher. So like, uh, you know, poultry is higher and uh, wild game like venison and rabbits and bison is way, way higher. And fish and seafood is just absurdly high and like you just got incredibly high protein percentages and we know that's the biggest driver of all so you're pretty much just done right off the bat with the protein then you've got micronutrients so all of these micronutrients have some type of satiety uh value add for satiety per calorie like potassium and calcium and you just got so many micros in in here so you're pretty much hitting the win button instantly on every lever there is except for fiber and so then you have to ask, well, what if I had like a really well-designed carnivore diet over here and I randomized people into a really well-designed carnivore diet with a freaking salad, you know, <laughs> with a side salad at every meal and I stuck them in a metabolic ward. Uh, I, I don't know if you read the latest Kevin Hall study with the uh, low, um, low fat plant-based diet versus the, uh, you know, high fat, low carb animal-based but the plant, the low fat plant people ate like 750 calories less per day. And so I, I think it's possible that the total exclusion of fiber is helping people who have irritable bowel syndrome or are sensitive to FODMAPs or have any kind of, if you have any kind of inflammatory bowel, irritable bowel, uh, GI unhappiness with certain fibers, maybe it would be good to not eat as much fiber. But most people, I would say you probably actually do slightly better um, eating that side salad on your well-formulated car carnivore diet. And until somebody proves me wrong with a, uh, well-designed <laughs> randomized, uh, you know, uh, trial in a inpatient ward and I'm challenging Kevin Hall to do exactly that. Um, I would say, you know, maybe it's, 
Car- carnivore is great, but maybe it could be even a tiny bit better. Well, my, my plea to Kevin Hall would be to, and I talked to him about this on, on the podcast a while ago, was to be to make these studies more than two weeks because that study you referenced was two weeks and the calories in the low-carb group was going down dramatically between week one and week two. And would it have kept going down? We don't know because the trial stopped at two weeks. And you know, for any kind of diet, especially a keto diet, it's got to be longer than two weeks, preferably four weeks or even longer, which is really hard to do in a metabolic ward. So I think we're, we're going to have to hold our breath on that. Although Kevin did say he was going to do longer studies and at least four-week studies, I think. Um, but I like the idea of, of um, Dr. David Ludwig's trials better, that you're like at some you know, his trials were like at this lake house out, you know, out in the woods. And that's where you get to stay as opposed to being stuck in a metabolic ward, you know, like <laughs> just doesn't sound quite as enjoyable. So harder to exactly. do for a longer time. That's true. Well, I feel like you can have well-controlled or really long, but never both. It's like a total right. trade-off. <laughs> and right. so we're right. never, we're never going to get what we want. Okay. So we talked about one end of the spectrum then with, with uh, zero carb or carnivore diets. So the other end of the spectrum would be like the traditional Okinawan diet, which is reported to be like 9% protein and all sort of sweet potato um, and and like kind of like local vegetables and things that they forage for. So I guess we don't really know their satiety levels, but we know that they didn't have type 2 diabetes or heart disease and they lived until their you know, 90s. And um, so how do you explain that from a satiety perspective then? Right, right. And so, you know, this just completely destroys anything I had to say about protein being most powerful. And we got the Samane eating 12% protein diet. It's like slightly less than the protein percent in the U.S. And I think that really highlights the importance of not being like mono-focused on any one factor because, you know, all of your plant-based vegans who are successful uh, are eating this fairly low protein percent but they're driving all the satiety per calorie with low energy density and micronutrients and fiber and water and all. They're basically doing everything else on the list and they're totally getting by. They're, they're in incredible health. And all of these groups uh, with low protein diets, you know, uh, are, are accomplishing that because the energy density is so, so low. So like in Okinawa, they get all these calories from potato, these sweet potatoes, which uh, are incredibly fibrous, like the the fiber per thousand calories in their diet, it, it's like 100 compared to 15 in the US. Mm-hmm. Energy density is super, super low. So like your, that potato is like 0.8 kcals per gram. That's that's nothing. I mean, you, ha- you have to eat your body weight in those every day to get enough calories just to be alive. So you can't overeat it. It's, so that, that's a perfect example of how all these uh, other levers added together can be just as powerful as uh, like something like protein. So, you know, the potato has an absurd amount of potassium in it. Uh, that is probably the most important micronutrient when it comes to satiety per calorie. So they're getting this crazy high micronutrients, crazy high potassium, uh, super um, high fiber. Glycemic index is actually not as bad as you would think. Energy density is rock bottom low. And then it doesn't matter what the protein percent is, as long as you get adequate protein, all those other factors are going to raise satiety per calorie enough that you're going to be fine. And I not even mentioning the fact that they, you know, they have a step count of 20,000 steps per day versus right. 4,000 steps per day in the U S. So if you are having to eat more carbs to get to the protein where you're not hungry, you're just walking it off or basically you're eating that after you've already walked and you're starving. So I would say that that's probably a factor somehow too, you know, if you have to eat a protein dilute diet, um, but you're doing a lot of walking exercise caloric, 
expenditure with physical activity, then you're probably insulated from some of that. Yeah, good point. I like I like the analogy of pulling the levers, that if you're going to pull the protein lever pretty hard, you don't have to pull the other levers as hard. But if you're not going to pull that protein lever, you can still get there by really cranking down on the other level levers to, to more of an extreme. So I think mm-hmm. that visual can really, can really help. And you talked about exercise. So how does exercise play into satiety? Because we hear, you know, exercise isn't the best way to lose weight, although it may help you maintain weight. A lot of times exercise can actually make you hungrier depending on how you do exercise. So how do you see exercise fitting into satiety? Basically, we do know from studies that exercise is not a great way to drive weight loss. Like you don't want to say, okay, it's time to lose a bunch of weight. I'm going to do it with exercise. And the problem is as you exercise more and more, your body just puts a rigid ceiling on calorie burn by just making you sit on the couch the whole rest of the day. So you do an hour of CrossFit and then you literally don't move for the rest of the, for the other 23 hours a day, cause you're just wiped out. And so your body throttles back on everything else. And so it really caps how much um, actual weight loss from just burning calories you're gonna get from exercise. So it's never good to just say, I'll, I'm gonna just keep eating the same diet and drive all my weight loss by just doing more and more and more exercise. That is not gonna work. And we do know that um, for a fact. However, we have all these uh, ideas that are actually kind of wrong. Like everyone thinks, well, exercise is just going to make me hungrier. I'm going to eat more. I might even gain weight. All of this is pretty much mythical. Like we have a ton of studies now that show that people do not um, compensate all the calories back from exercise. Almost universally, people do lose weight when they add in exercise. So uh, there's a couple factors there. First of all, if you're doing any high intensity exercise higher than about 60% of your maximum output, so if you're jogging or sprinting or whatever, um, you get this extreme um, exercise-induced anorexia where for an hour or two afterwards, you're just super not hungry. If you don't believe me, just go, you know, just do uh, 20 minutes of sprinting and you are extremely not hungry. Even if you were hungry before, you're not hungry for an hour or two. Now, that doesn't really change your overall daily um, balance. And studies show that acute exercise, people get this acute um, exercise-induced anorexia for a few hours if they were doing anything over about 60% of maximum output. Uh, But then later in the day, what happens is nothing. People are not eating more. They're not eating less. They're not like compensating uh, they're not eating back all those calories. They're, they're basically just burning the calories through exercise and doing nothing on the compensation side in the short term. That's if you're l- looking at same day, several days. We have studies looking at uh, you know the rest of one day, two or three days in a row, and you just don't get this short-term compensation that everyone thinks they get. Your appetite is not going to be higher. You're not going to eat more food. You're not going to overcompensate. Even in the worst case scenarios, which is someone who's very, very overweight and very insulin resistant, you might compensate 50% of those calories back that you uh, expended with uh, cardio. Um, so you're, you're, it's mythical that it's going to make you gain weight because you're going to be more hungry. That's not true. What it has been proven to do extremely dramatically is improve uh, satiety uh, signaling. So you get much more sensitive to satiety signals. So people get way more in tune with um, hunger and fullness. They're a little bit hungrier when they should be hungry. They're fuller after a meal when they should be full. And the long-term effect of chronic exercise is improvement in body composition. Body fat goes down because you have better satiety signaling. 
Also, as you're, so just exercising resistance or cardio, you get better satiety signaling. You're more sensitive to satiety hormones. You're more sensitive to the signals of hunger and fullness. A couple other things happen. You also actually have less craving and desire for hedonic foods. So people who start to exercise don't have the same reward from donuts and candy bars and cupcakes that they had before. They actually get uh, more liking and wanting for healthy foods, low energy density foods, higher protein foods. They get less craving for things like uh, the high energy density carbs and fats together. So you get an improvement in your likes and wants. You get less reward from addictive hedonic obesogenic foods. You get more in touch with hunger and fullness. And then the one other thing, uh, well, a couple other things about exercise, if you're building lean mass and improving your basal metabolic rate, uh, you're just burning more calories all the time. And at this higher energy flux, you're better able to uh, match energy intake and energy expenditure. So there's this concept about body weight regulation and managing intake with expenditure. And if you look at um, total energy expenditure, people who are in the sedentary zone where they're only burning like 1.3 times their basal metabolic rate. So you have a basal metabolic rate if you're just asleep on the couch all day. And then you have an additive, a multiplier of that from your activity. So if you're super sedentary and just sit around all day, maybe your total daily energy expenditure is 1.3 or 1.4 times your basal metabolic rate. So if you're just sitting all day, here's your BMR. If you're sedentary, you're 1.3 times your BMR. But if you can do an extra half an hour of exercise a day and get up to about a 1.7 times your basal metabolic rate uh, or even higher, you just see people matching intake to expenditure way more perfectly. So you're just basically automatically not overeating. And uh, there's this unregulated zone where you're the more and more sedentary you are, uh, you keep eating as many calories as you'd eat if you were exercising. And then in order to burn those calories, because you're not exercising, you just literally have to get fatter and have a larger body. So your basal metabolic yeah. rate. So the main determinant of basal metabolic rate is body size. So basically end of the day, everybody's burning the same amount of calories, whether they're active or not. You can either burn them by being fatter or by moving more period, the end. And so that's kind of how it works. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So to summarize that though, if, if you could do resistance training and then be fairly sedentary or don't do resistance training but move your body kind of all day long, which would you think you would choose for, you know, healthy weight loss and satiety? Both. <laughs> You're not going to choose yeah. one or the other. You got to do right both. Right down the middle. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. like if you put a gun to my head and said you can only do resistance or cardio, I would probably – Pick resistance, but just barely. Like, I honestly think they're both super important. And, uh, you know, cardio is like improves uh, VO2 max and, and cardio respiratory fitness is one of the number one metrics you can measure in any human as to how long they're going to live, all cause mortality. Um, basically, the, the better your cardio respiratory fitness, the longer you're going to live. Pretty much a bigger factor than anything else you can measure. So I love doing like brief high intensity cardio to improve uh, VO2 max and maximum output and cardiorespiratory fitness. But then I love doing resistance training. So you have better body composition, higher lean mass. Lean mass is how you dispose of all your glucose and get rid of all your calories. And you can burn a lot of fat and, uh, and um, carbs in this skeletal muscle. And so you really want both. It's really right down the middle. Like, honestly, the whole metabolic health is uh, equal parts getting more muscle and less fat at the same time. 
and it's equally about satiety per calorie for lower fat and then resistance training for more muscle and then cardio so that your uh, energy flux goes, is nice and high and you're just burning through a lot of calories every day. And so you, you can't, you really want to do them all. You want to be high protein, low carb, low fat, high fiber, low energy density, moderate cardio, moderate resistance, uh, daily step count, general movement. Like you, you kind of want to be pulling every single lever we've mentioned to a moderate degree and add them all together. And I think that's the sweet spot. Yeah, but that might sound pretty hard for a lot of people to do. It's like, wow, that's a lot of things to think about. That's a lot of things I have to change in my life. So how do you help your patients prioritize? Because I think we know from experience, if you try and change too many things at once, you change nothing and you get frustrated and you give up and say it doesn't work. So so what's your, your strategy for helping people make the most important changes at first so that they can stick with it long-term and succeed? Right, right. And you never want to just do a whole bunch of crazy things at once. You're just going to burn out. <clears throat> so I, what I like is starting out with exactly what you're eating now and substituting out versions that are slightly higher in protein or fiber and slightly lower in carbs and fats. And <clears throat> what that looks like is, you know, you, you're instead of uh, eating, you know, a burrito, you eat a burrito with a low carb tortilla and some uh, like uh, chicken breast instead of carnitas and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, pinto beans and lettuce instead of like, you know, I don't something uh, I can't, can't even think of a good example there. But basically you're taking each little ingredient and trying to substitute something that's a little higher in protein, a little higher in fiber, uh, a little lower in carbs or fats. I think most low carbers are, are doing this already because they're like, oh, instead of bread, I'm eating low carb bread. That's awesome. It's a huge win. It's going to have more protein. It's going to have more fiber. It's going to have lower energy density. You're doing all those at once. Uh, or if you're like, okay, right now I'm just eating the fattiest bacon I can find every morning for breakfast. Maybe I'll eat like Canadian bacon instead. It's going to have, you know, double the protein percent, a lot lower energy density, higher satiety per calorie. You're going to feel just as full and for what hundred calories less. Um, and it's little substitutions like this throughout the day. You just take everything you're eating, look at the macros and say, ooh, how could I eat slightly higher protein or less glycemic carbs or a little more fiber and less glycemic carbs? And, you know, and it's just getting like leaner this and low carb that and whole grain something else. And, you know, just throwing in like a salad or something. And then on the exercise side, also, you want to just start out really, really basic, like I'm just going to wear my Fitbit or my Apple watch and just track my step count and try to get maybe to 8,000 steps a day, which is an awesome goal. You know, that's four miles. That's like a hour of exercise. You, you pretty much could just track your steps and then go to the gym twice a week and just do like 15 minutes of uh, push pull legs. You know, it's like a chest press, a row and a leg press. And you, you just start out really, really small, do little tiny bits and just try to make it a habit and keep it sustainable. And then it, it's mostly about sustainability and uh, tiny changes that you can do a really long time. Yes, it's an interesting difference in philosophy, the tiny changes to see small incremental goals or make big changes to see the big, you know, to see the big improvements, which can be very motivating as long as you can do it. So uh, do you kind of warn people or, or, or tell them ahead of time, if you make these small changes, you might see very small differences, but it's the long-term that we're going for. Like, how do you keep them from getting frustrated? Like, yeah, I did what you said and I lost two pounds. Like, come on, what's that? You know, like, how do you, how do you prevent that? 
Well, it's really, really hard. And nothing's harder than <clears throat> resistance exercise. So fat loss is actually faster. People can just, you know, um, change their diet for a week and they'll lose some fat. I mean, it, boom, it's happening. But like adding muscle um, or getting stronger or fitter or better cardiorespiratory fitness is so slow. Like you could go to the gym today and tomorrow and the next day and next week and the week after that. And you'll, you won't notice really much of anything. You won't be that much stronger. You won't have that much more muscle. You won't really look any better. And it's so slow. You have to do it, you know, for six months or a year. And it's just like building a sandcastle with a teaspoon. And it is very, it is very depressing, which is why you have to make sure that, um, people enjoy it, that they're having fun, that they know that they're making a long-term investment in their future health. And uh, you do have to set people up for the fact that that's going to be a very, very slow process. And if you just, you know, could do that for 10 years and then look at yourself then immediately, everybody would be just like at the gym right now. <laughs> like if you could see how you'll look after a decade of intentionally lifting uh, with a high you know, level of effort twice a week for, you know, 10 years. Oh, everybody be at the gym right now instead of listening to this podcast. But like, it's so, it's so slow. Or listening to the podcast while they're at the gym, hopefully, right? <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> but, but in today's society is so like immediate, right? It's so like you turn on your phone, you get immediate gratification. It's, it's, you want immediate, you know, Amazon shipping, you know, one day shipping, not a plug for Amazon, but it's like, we're, we're like trained for um, immediate results. So do you get a lot of resistance or find a lot of people not succeed because they want better yeah. results right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, honestly, if your TikTok's more than about five seconds, everybody's on to the next one. So you just already lost them. So I have to admit it, that is very challenging because you have to play the long game and you have to enjoy the process and you have to be really patient and you have to see the big picture. And it's, uh, it's that's not easy. I don't think that... Um, you know, intuitively, uh, people aren't doing that because they're looking for a faster reward. So that is tough. And that's why you have to do some form of exercise that you really like, and you're actually going to enjoy it because it's going to take a long time for it to, uh, have measurable benefits. And you have to eat foods that you really like to be able to, to stick with this long term. So, uh, I guess two questions. One is, you know, how do you factor in, uh, eating in a way that you really enjoy that fits with satiety per calorie, but also is there, I guess the corollary of that question is, is there risk of going too far? High protein, low carb, low fat. And, you know, is that sustainable, right? Like 10% fat and 10% carbs and the rest protein, like who can eat like that, right? So there's an extreme to this satiety approach that, that is just not going to be enjoyable. So how do you help people find that sweet spot? Well, the answer to both of those is the same thing. And that's yeah. this tiny gradual progression with little tiny changes that you can sustain. So like, uh, if you're like, Oh wow. Okay. Protein, fiber, water, good carbon fats are bad. I'm just going to eat whey powder and then drink a gallon of water done. Uh, it's, you're just going to completely fail. You, you really just can't go that extreme. Uh, the, the more extreme you go, the less sustainable it is, the, uh, faster you're just you know, people and then people fall off the wagon hard and they just binge and then they're like oh dieting stupid i'm never i'll just eat whatever i want and so there's so many things that can go wrong when you try to go too extreme uh you know first of all if you lose weight too fast in general half of what you lose is lean mass so then you people rebound they lose you know 50 50 fat and lean mass and then their basal metabolic rate goes down and their body still wants to eat the same number of calories. So everyone just loses weight and gains it right back. So the slower you can lose weight, the better. Because uh, 
the higher and higher and higher percent of the weight lost will be actual fat. Um, so the way you kind of prevent either going way too extreme and crashing and burning or, um, you know, uh, and also making it sustainable is to make these tiny changes. So like, I don't care what anybody's eating right now. You could find a version of that that's slightly higher satiety per calorie. Let's say you just totally exist off Krispy Kreme donuts. They make a donut that's a cake donut that's not glazed, and it's literally got half the calories. So if you switch to cake donuts from glazed donuts, <laughs> you're actually going to lose weight. And, and like, you know, it's just like little tweaks like that. You know, meet people where they're at by you take your existing diet and just make these little directional tweaks to them and uh, just, you know, keep it sustainable, keep it enjoyable, make sure you like it, enjoy the process, and then just iterate on it. You know, consistency is everything. So if you make these tiny changes that you can do every day, like, could you just be a, for the rest of your life, could you be a carnivore and then also a low fat carnivore and just eat like shrimp and boiled chicken breast? Uh, hell no, you're not even gonna do that one meal, let alone a day, let alone forever. But could you, for the rest of your life, you know, eat a bacon that's slightly leaner than like that super cheap, super fat bacon you've always eaten. Yeah, I think you could actually do that. Like people could actually do that and they would actually have better body composition eventually after um, iterating on that. And then you just apply that to a few other areas. And I, th I think that's the secret. All right. All right. That's a good way to describe it. Um, so tra transitioning for a second, now there's a lot of cool stuff happening at, at Diet Doctor with, with new tools and programs to, to really work on this uh, satiety approach. And you have been instrumental in a number of these. So, so tell us about the satiety calculator. Tell us about the satiety approach that we have at Diet Doctor and how people can practically use that to, to help themselves learn how they're eating now and how to improve it. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been you know, great working with you guys at Diet Doctor. I love it. I'm super excited. Uh, I've been working on this satiety calculator uh, concept, and, and a lot of it is really about the, the three axes that I was talking about in that graphic. So you have the first and most important one is protein percent of calories. You have this uh, on the satiety cal uh, calculator, you have either a, a graph that has protein percent on the y-axis or a bar that shows protein percent. And higher is better. But then again, this is on kind of a inverted semicircle U-shaped curve where uh, you don't want your protein percent to be too low. You don't want it to be too high. And there's a middle zone that's good. It's kind of divided into thirds. There's too low, which is America. There's too high, which is like any stage prep bodybuilder who's just going to you know, be starving out of their mind and then rebound and gain a bunch of weight back later. And then there's this kind of good zone, you know, maybe 20 to 30, 40% of calories from protein where you really want to be. And uh, so that's one of the major um, uh, calculator um, metrics is this protein percent of calories. Uh, the other one is energy density of food. So that's basically just looking at um, how, how many grams of food you get to eat for how many calories. So Humans do two things when they're eating. Number one, they eat until they get enough protein and then they stop eating. So you're just gonna keep eating until you get enough protein in the day. The other one is you eat at a meal until you get a certain weight and volume of food. And we have studies showing that people eat basically the same weight and volume of food, almost irrespective of the calories in there. So we have studies where they actually designed the um, lowest energy density meal and the highest energy density meal 
and people ate them both randomized and had equal satiety scores afterwards, but the high energy density people ate twice as many calories, literally twice as many calories. And so this is a very powerful phenomenon. It's more of a short-term satiety. It's more of a um, you know, earlier satiety and the protein is more of a later satiety, but you add the two together and it's very powerful. So the first metric is protein percent of calories. The second one is energy density of food, which is um, basically how many calories are in how many grams. Or another way to think of it is how much weight and volume do you get to eat for a certain amount of calories? So like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, M&Ms, you get a tiny handful of like 10 M&Ms, but raspberries, you get like three pounds of raspberries, a huge weight of volume. So the third one is fiber. And that's, uh, you know, grams of fiber per thousand calories. And, um, you know, guidelines say you should eat 30 grams of fiber per thousand calories. In the U.S., we're down here at like 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories. The um, you know, the HODs are eating, you know, 100, 150 grams of fiber per thousand calories. So we, you know, we could improve and it does improve satiety per calorie. This is a evidence-based phenomenon. So the third thing we're looking at is fiber percent of calories, which is more, mostly about like, you know, eating more fiber, eating less glycemic carbs, which is this other, um, axis in my crazy, crazy graphic. Um, so, you know, basically you've got protein percent of calories, energy density of food, fiber, um, and then the last one is the hedonic factor. This is food reward. This is liking and wanting and addictive food reward. So um, we know that this trifecta of high carb, high fat, high energy density uh, is really going to drive overeating. These are foods that are low in protein, low in fiber, low in water. We talked about them already, your potato chips, your nuts, your um, <clears throat> things that are, you know, basically carbs and fat together, all your donuts and your pizza and your junk food. Uh, and these are very easy to overeat because they're so palatable. You want to eat more and more and more of them. Um, and it's a lot of calories. So that is almost a negative satiety per calorie. So the satiety per calorie um, is calculating. It's kind of, you're getting a, uh, an additive from protein and fiber and water or low energy density. Um, and then you're kind of getting a subtraction from hedonic foods. And the, the net result is this satiety score where you don't want to be 100%. That would be egg whites and whey powder and uh, 10 gallons of water, and it's not going to work. But you don't want to be too low because that's potato chips and the standard American diet, and, and like 92% of Americans are overfat. So there's this middle zone, you know, this sort of like maybe 40 to 60, you know, somewhere we, we've kind of designed 50 to be like a good central middle zone where you kind of want to be, um, you, you, the only thing you really want to do with satiety per calorie is be a little bit higher than you were before. So like, let's say you're, you calculate your diet. Uh, you know, I figured the standard American diet right now is about a 25 on this scale. Yeah. And like, you know, maybe you want to be a 30 or a 35 or like, you know, I think getting up to about 50 would be good. Um, but th that's kind of how it works. And, and the idea, the whole idea is just to be higher than last time, higher than you were before and, uh, in a sustainable, enjoyable fashion by making little substitutions and still eating what you like, still enjoying your diet, um, not doing anything crazy, but just making these small tweaks, most of which are very low carb friendly and low carb compatible. In fact, low carb is really just kind of the original satiety per calorie. And you're just making these little tweaks and trying to be higher than you were last time. And that way you can automatically eat less without being hungry 
and enjoy the process. Yeah, I like that really practical approach, um, sustainable, enjoyable approach. And when you do it that way, it fits with any type of dietary pattern. You want to eat meat, you don't want to eat meat. You like Chinese food, you like Italian food. You like, uh, you know, whatever uh, ethnic food, cultural food, whatever type of dietary makeup, Mediterranean, Dash, whatever, you can apply the same concepts to it to make it a better version of that diet. So I, I really like your practical approach and I thank you for taking the time to to share all your wisdom and your approach um, and of course your your uh, your humor. I love the way you describe things and define things and your graphics. It's all great. So thanks so much for joining us today. Oh no, thank you for having me. Great to talk to you. Well, that concludes this episode with Dr. Ted Naiman. I hope you enjoyed that and learned a lot about satiety. But it doesn't just conclude this episode. It actually concludes the season. After four years and 110 episodes, the Diet Doctor podcast has taken a break and we're wrapping up this season. But don't worry, our team is working on new formats to bring you cutting edge uh, scientific information in, in ways that you can understand it and translate it to your life and how it can help you. We're working on creative new ways of delivering content that I'm sure there's going to be so much coming down the road in the future. So although we're wrapping up the podcast for now, stay tuned for more information from Diet Doctor.